Hi, everyone. Welcome to a new episode of The Bottom Up Revolution. I'm your host, Tiffany Owens Reed. In case you missed the news from our last episode, Rachel is passing the baton off to me as your new host. I'm so honored to be in this role, and I'm really excited about the conversations I'll get to have in the coming weeks and months. In today's episode, I'm talking with Lavette Fuller, a native of Shreveport, Louisiana, and co-founder of Reform Shreveport, a nonprofit dedicated to working with locals to improve the quality of life in the city. Her political career started in 2018 when she was elected to city council. During her time in this role, she worked on a variety of issues related to public safety, infrastructure improvements, economic development, and financial transparency. After one four-year term, she ran for mayor in 2022, and although she didn't win, Lavette remains committed to helping her city thrive. She's also a member of the Strong Towns Advisory Board, and fun fact, she wrote the afterword to Chuck Marone's first book titled Strong Towns. Lavette, welcome to the Bottom Up Revolution. Well, let me say thank you to Tiffany. Well, let's jump into some fun questions. Can you tell me a little bit about yourself? Um, Shreveport is home for you, right? You were born and raised there. Yes, I was born and raised here. I went to college here at Centenary College, left for about four and a half years to San Francisco. Um, my background is dance and theater. And um, now I've, I've managed to go from being a children's and teen services library worker to a politician and a realtor. I'm in real estate now. So I've kind of meandered around a little and I kind of got where I am now because of land use policy. Um, Historic preservation is a big interest. I'm here with you right now because of the work I've done with a group that I helped start called Reform Shreveport. That group and our work started because of me being on the Metropolitan Planning Commission for the city of Shreveport, learning more about land use policy and wanting to help educate people more. Um, And from there, the knowledge kind of grew and people felt like it might be good for someone like me to do more to influence policy as an elected official. And I did four years on the city council serving District B, which has a lot of our historic neighborhoods and our downtown in Shreveport. And I ran for mayor and um, we are now post-election where I did not win, but I'm still very involved with Reform Shreveport and the community and doing real estate. There's so much there that I'm excited to jump into during the course of our conversation One question I always love to ask people who are involved in their city is how they became city conscious. Like, what was it that sort of woke them up from just sort of existing in the city to actually starting to notice things and put pieces together and then, yeah, just take this deep dive into really understanding the built environment? You know, it's funny. I I think that there's always in my personality been curiosity about cities and a curiosity about places that I visit beyond just, you know, what tourists are led to. There's just something to me about the cultural identity of places. Every place seems to have a personality. And I kind of got to this point where my curiosity became action through moving away. Um, When, before I moved to California, I made friends with someone, a young architect who that moved back to Shreveport and had these big ideas for what to do in some of our historic area. And that person kind of turned on a lot of young people in Shreveport to independent cinema, experimental music, experimental film. And I think that that curiosity about what we could do in a small city without a lot of options, if you didn't make things yourself, kind of led me to finding more people like that in other corners of the world, um, or at least corners of this country. So from there, moving back to Shreveport, realizing that other cities that I've visited and thought about what made them special, a lot of it seemed to be the built environment. Um, To me, at first, it seemed to be the older areas, the architecture that makes places distinct. In the U.S., we have a lot of things in bigger cities that we can point to that are very much, San Francisco has a very distinct self-architecture. 
Brooklyn, New Orleans has a couple of things that make it very distinctly New Orleans. And while a lot of smaller places may not have such major distinctions, they all have their things. And for me, realizing that we had this great inventory of historic facades in our downtown area, and then these great um, craftsmen, little the Sears craftsmen from the 1920s, 30s, the Victorian historic properties that we have here, I felt like we were taking those things for granted. And the more curious I got about those things, the more I learned that certain of those properties were part of what would have been considered the Shreveport Black Wall Street because of segregation and where people were able to shop. And that curiosity led to me helping to get the Historic Preservation Society of Shreveport out of mothballs. I made new friends when I moved back to Shreveport that were in the field of historic preservation and realized that if we didn't advocate, no one else would advocate. That kind of helped me to self-actualize in this way. And I feel like I'm kind of talking around it, like I'm trying to be concise and I might be missing some pieces of it. But for me, I enjoy going to any city and being able to be immersed in what makes that city special. I like to do the most local, non-corporate things I can possibly do in any community. I like having friends in other places that I visit them, they visit me, and hearing them say, you know, Shreveport is pretty special. There are some really interesting things about your community, and I don't know that people who live there and were born there here really appreciate those things or really see those things that clearly and wanting the place that you're from to be loved and to feel like it has value I don't think that that's a unique thing but I do think in Shreveport there aren't a lot of people who spend a lot of time thinking about caring about where we live more than it just being a place to spend time doing what you need to do to get through the day in order to visit somewhere else, you know? It's almost like you're getting at this idea of a city being more than just a place to conduct transactions, like, and to conduct them efficiently and to conduct them (laughs) conveniently. It's like, maybe there's more to a city than that. Like, maybe there's this need for your city to feel distinct, to have personality, to feel special, to be beautiful, to be a a place to spend time outside of conducting a transaction, you know? Yes. And you're marking time in a place. Um, I do think that one funny thing about San Francisco compared to being in the South or being even more so it's more distinct on the East coast is seasons. When you think about your memories of a place and how you pass time, I don't think you have to be literary to actually have a very distinct encapsulation of a moment when things happen that were special to you. And it could get hard to mark time in a place like California where all the seasons on the surface seem very much the same. And then you can get deeper into like the rainy season and when things do kind of cool off in California, Northern California. But at first glance, it's very like a superficial level. Everything's almost always kind of green, right? But I only mention that to say there should be something poetic about anyone's life. You're doing more than just the transactional. You're doing more than being a cog in the wheel. You are passing time and having wonderful things happen in your life and that built environment should be a part of how you appreciate that, right? You sh- it shouldn't just feel like everything is just kind of on autopilot. Right. I've always said that cities are the stage for the human drama of living. Totally. Right? I, and and, and, totally. and to, to give people credit, I mean, I've seen people be pretty creative in pretty non-extraordinary cities. So I think there's also a case to, to be made for like, you know, the, the human spirit will be creative. We will, we will make our lives beautiful. When I think about, <laughs> yeah. Well, to think about the amazing, um, the amazing amount of music that has come out of the cornfields of Nebraska, like, or the garages like, of suburbia or the garages of suburbia. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I, I think that, I mean, and there's a lot of talent in Shreveport. Like we do have, um, we can claim some legendary space in music in particular here. Um, Huddy Ledbetter, Ledbelly, um, 
the phrase Elvis has left the building is one that people always talk about because that did happen in Shreveport. The Louisiana Hayride was at our municipal auditorium in our downtown. Um, and we have talent now, like in our present era, Kenny Wayne Shepherd, um, AJ Haynes is a friend who I'm very proud of and her band Serotones. And that's just scraping the surface too of what we have that happens like, frankly, because you have to make your own fun. You better get creative, right? <laughs> well, it's almost like you're making a case for why cities ought to take themselves more seriously. It's like humans will be creative. They will make culture. They will make magic. They will make poetry out of their lives. Like, why not think of your city as like a place to capture all of that rather than letting it be dispersed all over the place and hidden and difficult for to find? You know, it's like, this is a fundamental reality of being human. Yeah, like, yes. think about your cities as places to capture all that music, capture all that poetry, and make it more visible, right? Well, and in, in books like The Rise of the Creative Class, like, there is some hinting at that, like, creative things happen where people have the space to have the freedom to collaborate. And we could see that happen in other places while also, you know, in the follow-up book, let's be mindful that we don't overtake a place and displace the people that were already there. Like we, we are, we are becoming more cognizant of the energy that belongs to cities, the collaborative effort that can be harnessed in a place that's so fertile for that. And I think that a smaller place can do that. And I think that that's a lot of, you know, why we're even talking today is if Shreveport can be a place that recognizes and celebrates the things that make it special, the people who are here can know that they have a fertile environment or a willing environment for them to have those collaborations and to create more wonderful things for other people to celebrate. And then more is more, right? Yeah. I love how you're how you're able to draw this connection between architecture and historic preservation and the idea of cities having a unique and distinct identity. I really appreciate when people are able to connect things like that to each other. Um, I want to ask you about Shreveport. You've kind of started to tell us a little bit about it, but tell me about your hometown. Tell me what you love. Tell me what are some of its challenges and what, what motivates you to, to work because you did spend some time in California and then you yeah. came back. This place just kind of, I love it. And I often get very frustrated because it is kind of, it's a puzzle. Shreveport, the history of it is so disjointed. We are a river city, the Red River, which is a tributary of the Mississippi River. And it stretches, um, I want to say through East Texas, through across Oklahoma, East Texas, into North Louisiana, and then across through central Louisiana to connect to Mississippi. So we are a port city that was created by Henry Miller Shreve by clearing a log jam that allowed for the port to actually be used, to be utilized. Um, we were a rough and tumble place. Our main industries starting out were Louisiana commerce. It's going to be agriculture, cotton, and then also oil. But we were very rogue. Um, the first thing to settle was a red light district. The last thing to settle was the church. And because we were cotton and oil and shipping and markets in place, a place for people to exchange goods, there's kind of this desire, I think, in our DNA to want instant gratif gratification or at least quick gratification. We don't like doing things that take a lot of effort and a long time to yield fruit. Um, and we're kind of quick to be skeptical of things that are going to take a long time. But we're also in that sort of skeptical place because We've seen a lot of things try to take hold, not get traction, and fall apart. And that leads to a certain kind of low morale and malaise in people and just sort of a cynicism about, about what could happen. People say we have a lot of potential, but we're waiting to see that potential be tapped. And we're waiting with the wrong kind of energy. Like you can't really sit back in cynicism and expect something positive to happen. But our early history is very much tied to the river, the commerce, the oil, 
the red light district and then moving into the civil rights era, we do have some very distinct um, things that happened here that were kind of terrible. We had pastors of black churches where the civil rights movement was taking root, dragged out of the church by the local commissioner of public safety and beaten on the steps of the church. That should be a moment in our uh, oral history that should be encapsulated somewhere. I think it's been recorded, but it hasn't been presented to the public yet. But um, that's Pastor Blake, who actually passed away at the beginning of the COVID era here in 2020. But we did have one visit from Dr. Reverend Martin Luther King um, with our civil rights leaders of the city um, who were very much active in organizing through the church. But we also were the inspiration for the Sam Cooke song, A Change Is Gonna Come, um, because he was arrested trying to um, book or reserve a hotel room after a concert here in what turned out to be a whites-only hotel. So there's a harshness here. There's been a harshness and a distinction between the white wealthy community and the black up-and-coming community, the poor and the middle class. Redlining has been very distinct here. And I think we'll get back into that if we talk about Joe Minakazi's work in Shreveport. But there's distinctions that happen across the railroad tracks that were then made firmer through first I-20 that goes through here, uh, east to west, connecting us to Dallas, Texas, west of us, and Atlanta, east of us. Um, And then again, through I-49, north-south. The pattern might have already been there, but we definitely built a more permanent wall with those things. And there's still a connection, a piece of um, the I-49 that needs to be connected through the middle of the city, going through historic black community that is just to the west of our downtown. We have more water than just the river here. And I think that our built environment and our natural environment, what makes them beautiful and distinct is one, the architecture that I've kind of hinted out, the historic architecture we have. Our downtown is a main street downtown with these beautiful century old um, facades. Some of them are very ornate because they were they were a, they were commissioned when we had a lot of oil money. And then we have this town square that has our courthouse in the middle of it. And in the last couple of years, the Confederate monument that sat in front of it was finally taken down. And yeah, I think what I'm saying to you is that in 2019, 2020, we still had a Confederate marker in front of our um, public parish court. And we have parishes here instead of counties. So remnants of that harshness are still there at a time when you think that we should have come so much further. And in some ways we have, but in some ways we're still kind of, we're still watching the Civil War play out here. I think one thing I appreciate about what you're explaining about your city's history and just its story is, well, I guess what you're demonstrating is just an awareness of your city's unique context, like what makes it different, what What's the story? What's the personality? What's the, I guess, attitude, for lack of a better word? And I think that's just so important to to have a mindfulness of that because sometimes it can – I feel like it can be so easy to get caught up with amazing ideas that make cities more amazing but forget that eventually it has to be translated for a specific place and a specific group of people with a specific story. Um, and it sounds like you understand that. Um, so I'm just curious if you could speak to that a little bit and, and maybe what has, how has that shaped your work and your advocacy and your, uh, your political work, your, you know, bringing new ideas to the city about how it can be better designed. Like how have you, how have you integrated that? Well, I do think that like, because we're in Louisiana, but we're North Louisiana and like South Louisiana often does not claim us. We do have to think more and say, okay, well, we're not that and we don't have to be that. Like, we're not, we're not Creole. We're not Cajun. We're just up here, but we do need to understand what we are. I think that the first part was understanding that my enjoyment of thinking about how cities work and how urban design kind of informs things and how really our planning commission works is kind of needing people to have it demystified. Like, 
I get really excited about stuff that other people are not necessarily that interested in, might find it to be really boring or tedious. And what people need is to understand how these things affect their life. They're impacting their life. So first, it's just meeting people where they are on specific issues that we're reacting to, right? You're not going to be able to get people as involved in like a master plan or a comprehensive plan about the future shaping of a city when they don't really get the nuts and bolts of how all these things work together and that we really can influence the shape of the city, the design of the city. But you can get them to stand up when they don't want certain things in their in their neighborhoods. And when it's NIMBY versus YIMBY, I do think that I tend to be more of a yes in my backyard than a no. But I realize that this community has had people who've had the influence and the education and the opportunity to leverage that other people just don't have. So if you come from the right background, if you have political pull, you can stop certain things from coming to your neighborhood. If you have no knowledge and no ability to get to those meetings where those decisions are being made, there's this idea that you just have to accept what's being brought to you. Being able to explain to people how these things work and what they need to do to advocate for themselves has been, for me, the thing that's been most useful. And it starts with things like rock crushers, um, borrow pits, liquor stores, industrial uses, other industrial uses, or other uses that people don't want. Um, Giving them the voice and the tools to speak up against those things, and then seeing their advocacy actually be positive and actually work. That's been a great first thing. Yeah. I love that idea of starting with what they understand, starting with what they know. Like, And, and I think that just ties back into knowing the story of your city, right? I feel like I've even had to learn this with um, being new to Waco. It's like I'm going on three years now, I guess, but I still consider myself very much a, a, a newcomer, right? So there's still aspects of the city's story and identity that like I probably don't really understand or I don't really know. So as excited as I might be for bike lanes and all kinds of fun stuff, you know, if I can't, if I can't translate that relative to the story of Waco to people who have lived here for a long time, you know, that's going to be, that's part of the process is learning how to do that. How do I bridge the gap between the unique story of this city and this fantastic idea? It's not overnight. <laughs> and, it, and, it, and, it, and it can't just be done by the numbers either. Like you can know the demographics of a city, what the average, what the population breakdown is, black, white, by age, by socioeconomics. And that still isn't going to, by education, but it's still not going to tell the whole story. But when you realize that people do equate, well, first GM was a huge, General Motors was a big manufacturer here. It was a huge job creator for this area. And a lot of our identity is caught up in what we do. Well, on top of us being a country that has favorite cars, places that make cars are going to feel like you are like a, that you are insulting everything that a community is about when you shirk cars. If you're walking down a street in Shreveport and you're not wearing exercise clothes, people want to know if you're okay. You can be stopped. Hey, is everything all right? Yeah, I'm just walking to get an ice cream cone. Oh, are you sure? Do you want to ride? Are you okay? When people move here from outside that have lived in more pedestrian areas, um, New York in particular, a new friend who's moved here from New York. And I'm like, how are you surviving? Because entry into this place is difficult. My neighbors think I'm crazy because I walk everywhere. Like I've had people, this is the friend, I've had people pull over and say, do you need help? Can I drive you somewhere? And it's like, no, walking is a totally natural thing to do. Uh, It's like, how are you going to get around without a car? My feet, like I can do this. (laughs) And it's like, yeah, like that's absolutely the same thing happened to me here in Waco. I realized like, (laughs) oh, I have to pause for a minute. The super cute outfits I would wear to walk around Brooklyn. I was like, I don't know, maybe after like getting stopped while being out and about a couple of times, I was like, maybe I'm doing this all wrong. <laughs> um, but yeah, the same, the same dynamic. Um, it, it just is really funny to have to think about that. What you're saying about 
GM being so tied into the idea. I feel like that's just one of those things that's, you know, when you know the story of your city, you can, you can kind of feel like, you know, we're going to make a case for, for other modes of transit. From But now that we understand this context, it can kind of help us shape how we talk to people, like how we present ideas, you know. And, and I don't want I don't want it to sound like, oh, I've learned all this history. I've done so much research and I'm approaching everything with a certain amount of nuance and sensitivity. Sometimes you just have to get shut down by people like you literally go. It would be really cool if we have bike lanes right here. Why would you do that? Are you trying like we don't have bikes? Like, why would you introduce bikes over here? And it's like, well, there are people who don't have cars and get a way to get around. Let's make it safer. Okay, put in a bike lane and then let's fast forward six months. Oh, we've had this bike lane for six months and I haven't seen anyone on a bike. And it's like, well, how much of that is because we're still learning? And how much of that is because we need to clean the gutters where the bike next to the bike lanes we're not cleaning them up and how much of it is we just didn't actually do anything else to slow traffic down to make to accommodate Mm -hmm. that use and then how much of it is that it's 300 degrees outside okay it's going to be 102 for the high every day for this week that you and I are talking right now um it's July 31st and yeah every day it's going to be over 100 you're not going to see people on a bike that don't have to be on a bicycle unless they can get out really early in the morning but you you do get you do get kind of bumped down every once in a while when you show up and are trying to do a new thing or people have tried so much to do things like our comprehensive plan Shreveport has a master plan the 2030 plan that started about at least 10 years ago um, that we were working on And you do all the outreach, you have all the community meetings, you see the same doers and curious people that show up for everything else, but you don't get the other people. And then what they say to you is, back to the cynicism, they come around, we've been canvassed, they give us the pamphlets, they have all the meetings, nothing ever changes. And so when you never see any reward for the labor you put in of trying trying to be that community member you start to get crestfallen about it. And that's some, that, that right there is just a result of people not altering their behavior to get more activity and get more engagement. Um, and you do definitely get kind of popped in the head when you're the next group that shows up and is like, hey, we really want to get your input on something. We want to try something. What's worked is going out and just doing um, with Reform Street for it, like, Picking a place and just doing the things like doing a neighborhood cleanup and not asking for anyone to show up. And then when people see you consistently showing up, then when you go back by and knock on their door and ask for input, um, because the city's decided we're going to let you guys help us figure out how to use this money. They'll say, yeah, we saw you out there. We really appreciate what you guys have been doing. And that, that proof that you're not just on a performative one time through to play altruistic tourism, that does make a difference in in getting to know more about people and where they're coming from. It almost sounds like you're saying lead with investment, <laughs> lead with lead by investing first, and then definitely. You know. I love the phrase "I can show you better than I can tell you," um, and I also know that we are a community that um, the director of our local chamber of commerce he said it once in a meeting. Um, we're racing to be second. They're, we're risk averse. We're racing to be second in Shreveport. Nobody wants to be first. No one wants to be the first pancake. So what happens is everyone's saying, hey, there's a thing that's happening. There's It could be as simple as there's litter on the street. Someone should pick that up. You know, hey, if you FaceTime yourself right now, you'll actually see the person that is the someone that could do it. But everyone's waiting for someone else to do it. We're very we're very averse to being the first person to kind of stick their neck out, even on things that would be like a net benefit, um, Mm -hmm. an obvious net benefit. So I want to talk more about Reform Shreveport. You you kind of hinted at a project you all did. I believe it was in the Highland neighborhood of Shreveport. So tell me a little bit about how Reform got started, what what your role is there. And then I'd love to kind of talk a little bit more about this um, this cleanup project in Highland that you all that you all put together a couple of years ago. So um, we invited, we became friends, me and my co-founders, 
around the space of discussing policy and bike lanes. And that led to us wanting to bring people in that could help us better engage the community around, around this idea that we could build a better vocabulary and we could all do more by knowing more. So we decided to invite Chuck. Um, we've been following Tim Wright introduced me to the blog and we from there determined that we should try to bring Chuck in. So Chuck came in and did a curbside chat, did a couple of different presentations and talked to a few smaller groups in Shreveport. And what we were left with was, you know, we can't just we can't just bring in people to talk. We need to actually do something. And one of the last things that we hear from Chuck was, you need to go where people are struggling, humbly walk with them and see what their struggles are and do one small thing to alleviate that struggle and then iterate from there. And we were thinking what our next small thing could be. Highland is one of our oldest historic neighborhoods. It is the most diverse part of this community by race and by socioeconomics um, and even by age demographics. It is a grid, lots of sidewalks, houses are built closer to the street, and it used to be a fairly mixed use and is still to some extent a mixed use neighborhood where amenities that people enjoy are a walking distance from their homes. But it's difficult to walk around an area when the sidewalks are kind of in bad shape and you're walking by things that make you feel less safe, even if it's perception more than reality. Highland Park is this beautiful, hilly uh, park with this great tree canopy. It has a disc golf course um, and it has this great walking trail that goes meandering through these hills and these trees. There's also a tennis court and a parking lot that have contributed to um, erosion of the soil, which has started to wear at the roots of some of these trees. And then it's created a lot of mud over the, um, the walking paths. And along with that, it's become a destination because there's no fencing around it, which is wonderful. But it means that it's an open area at night that wasn't very well lit that led to people doing things in the dark that they wouldn't do in the light, imbibing other adult activities that would be better suited to being inside. But, and, and then the remnants of those types of things. The, the park needed to be cleaned up because it meant that the kids that lived around there couldn't use the park. It was depreciating in a way that kind of hurt the value of the properties around it. And it meant that an amenity that would make people feel even more welcome and safe walking from point A to point B. They didn't want to walk near or around. So we decided to start those cleanups. And the moment that we started with just picking up trash, we were seen by a local who ended up running for office as well, very much invested in permaculture, who explained to us what the erosion was doing and how we could create terraces within the park to kind of slow down the water erosion, help the trees to reroot and keep the path clear of mud and debris um, as we were also just trying to make things cleaner. We had worked days at least monthly and the local neighborhood groups started working with us. The uh, different tree groups that had lots of mulching materials started bringing us organic material to help us with the terracing to kind of keep the park up. They saw what we were doing and wanted to contribute in different ways. And then it turned out that the city had some funds left over for park renovations that they were getting ready to start buying up park equipment. And we just asked, well, hey, um, we've enjoyed working with you guys. Would you mind if we kind of went out and canvassed the neighbors that live within like the perimeter of the park, two blocks all the way around two or three blocks to see what they would like in the park to see so that you don't just spend money on things that may not be what's the most desired in the park. And they allowed us to bring back that survey information and some of it might've seemed obvious, but they wanted better park equipment. They wanted better signage. They wanted better lighting um, at night to kind of keep some of the undesirable activity out. And in turn, when we did go knocking those doors, we did get that kind of, yeah, we've seen you out there. We really appreciate the work you're doing. And then this openness to actually like have conversations with us. Like a few times people invited us in, hey, come in, it's hot outside. 
let me get you a glass of water or a lemonade and have this conversation with you. And we got to learn more about the neighbors and the kids and the activity and different things that they saw positive and negative that were happening in the park that we were able to take back to the park and not just the park in some cases. Hey, there are some unsafe things happening in this park and these are things you might want to look into that might be pointing to other issues. With the yeah. Pool. It's almost like taking that step of like, let's just go do a trash pickup kind of functions as a trigger for someone to come along with information about how to take care of the park, the city department, neighbors start to get involved. So you just, and that's what's, I guess, probably scary about taking that one small step is you can't really predict what the response or what the reaction will be. But it's also what's so exciting about it because you don't have to control it. You don't have to have a perfect strategy or a perfect plan. You just have to take one small action and then kind of see like what it, it reminds me, did you ever read the children's book? I think it's called Stone Soup or something like that. Yeah, it's absolutely yeah. the Stone Soup approach. And um, and since you're in Texas, you should know there is a Louisiana version called Stone Gumbo, you know, but, <laughs> but it's absolutely, it's absolutely that approach. Like you start in with the one thing that you can contribute and before you know it, other people are bringing their contributions and now there's something that the entire community can enjoy together that I think does kind of give you a, an opportunity for momentum. It can be hard to overcome inertia. And I think that doing something very simple, like a cleanup can be a good way to kind of combat that inertia and stagnation. That was actually the next question I wanted to ask you was if you could share like two or three small steps or tips for going from idea through inertia to action just as you look back on that experience, because I feel like for people who want to be more involved in their city, who want to make their neighborhoods better, who want to make their town stronger, that can be a pretty big hurdle. It's like, I see things, I care, I have the language, I've read the articles, I've listened to the podcast. But when it comes time to do something, it can feel really overwhelming and intimidating. What what practical tips do you have? Every neighborhood group that your community might have, get involved there. Like start just following those groups Tim and Chris and I would have probably met each other through a few of the other things that active younger people in this community are doing but a lot of it was social media to get started um I would see there's a group called a better Shreveport and early in its inception on social media a lot of those conversations were genuinely about things that would make this community better. And a lot of it was about the built environment. There would be these conversations in that group and in other places about I-49 and the controversy around the connector. And all of a sudden I would see this person making these really earnest, good natured and positive and constructive comments about the dilemma and combating people who were coming with like a really kind of harsh elbows out sort of rhetoric style and being able to answer in this really constructive and healthy way. And I kind of started going, who is this Tim Wright guy? And just kind of following each other on social media and then messaging is how we became friends and how we came to want to work on a thing together. There are always going to be people in your community if you just look for them. Sometimes you're the one that's making the posts in the neighborhood groups and it gets you traction and it might give you three or four other people that allow you or empower you to do that first thing. Take it from the take it from virtual land into real life. Meet at the local coffee shop, find a sit down and just have lunch and talk about the things the ambitions and hopes that you have for your community and let that be a starting place. Um, from there, another good thing to do is sometimes to look at the data. For us, it was easy because we do know enough about this community and the diversity of a place like Highland. We know what the struggles are, but we could also take out a map and we could probably overlay a crime map and a census map about that shows who lives where by demographics and understand this community and then come to the same conclusion about a good place for us to start. If you're not as sure about those dynamics in your community, a good place could be is just going to the data and looking at what those struggles look like by the heat maps. You know, where's crime? Where's the failing school that overlaps with the crime? 
and the blight. And if it seems like that's too tall of a hill to, to climb, don't go for the D minus, go for the C plus. Go to that C plus neighborhood because there's probably already people there that are willing and ready to be a part of something. They just are looking for a place to get some traction themselves. And then you can take those people from that C plus neighborhood, make it a B plus neighborhood. And all of you with your new B plus can go over to that D plus D minus neighborhood and give them help because they've got more struggles and, and need more knowledge and more sensitivity. It sounds like what you're saying really is, you know, identify one tangible, helpful thing to do, find some partners and, Don't be afraid to pull out some official maps and figure out if you don't know already, like where you should channel your energy just based on your own experience. You know, you because we did that in Waco for a minute. I was working on a some ideas related to traffic calming and biking and stuff like that. And we asked the city for their maps around car accidents and the most dangerous streets. Um, And it was really insightful, you know, so we had wanted to really target the most dangerous intersection in Waco with some kind of creative or tactical ideas, you know, we would have had the data to back it up. So I I love what you're saying about that. A hard thing can be is when the data is all raw, like when no one has been doing, when there hasn't been any intention toward putting that data together in those ways, that in itself can be a project for someone. Like, I think that we have a lot of raw things here that those inputs need to be put together so that you can see how they intersect. Um, And I think that that can end up being a thing that kind of becomes a bigger obstacle for people. Don't let something like that get you down if it doesn't exist in your community. That just means that you need to demand it or get the raw data and put it together. Yeah. If you don't have it right now, like don't let that stop you. Just, yeah, just, you'll know where to go. (laughs) You know, start start with what you know, you know, that can (laughs) be like, okay, when we're a little bit more organized, it would be great if we had someone to to synthesize all this data. But yeah, I, I feel like things like that are the type of well-meaning and super helpful outcomes that can definitely keep me from doing anything. If I start to feel pressured about like, I need to have the perfect data, then I'll go another six months and not do anything. Whereas if I'm like, you know what? I've seen a lot of kids cross the street at this intersection. I'm just going to go on that. The data might not be perfect, but I've seen enough. Or or I've met with five neighbors and we've all keep complaining about the same corner or, or the same park. It's like, you know what? Let's start there. Like, or, or it's the kids keep playing basketball in the middle of the street and they're blocking traffic and I worry about them. They're becoming aggressive with traffic. And I'm also afraid that I'm going to hit someone's child. And we heard that when we were in Highland. And the other thing we heard was, oh yeah, like they're jumping the fence to the school, the closed school and playing basketball over there. I think that turning one of the tennis courts in the park would be into a basketball court would be a good thing because no one plays tennis over here. That's still an obstacle that we haven't been able to overcome because there's always a few vocal people that have stigmatized basketball. So they don't want, they're, they're going to play NIMBY about it, but I'm not giving up on that because the narrative, like the anecdotal data is there. One, we're worried about hitting kids with our cars that are playing in the street with a hoop. And two, they're jumping a fence to a closed school in order to play. Like, it's not always going to be a bike path or a sidewalk, but it's still something that's impacting, like, how people feel welcome in their city. Yeah, or how they, like you were saying earlier, how they pass time and make these Mm -hmm. memories, right? Yeah, exactly. So I want to ask you about how do you, just in the course of your work at Reform, your time on the council, I'm sure there's plenty of projects you've been able to work on that we unfortunately won't have the time to dive into on this episode. But what I want to ask you about is 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 how you bring people together. So especially in a city like Shreveport and even Waco, where there is a history of racism, there is a history of just really very real tensions, whether along race, whether along class, however you want to cut it up. I think one of the challenges now is figuring out for cities is like, okay, how do we look at our history? How do we look at these very real realities? But how do we also look forward and how do we come together and shape some sort of shared vision um, and find shared goals that can motivate us and inspire us with new visions for what our our city can be? Um, I, I I would just love to hear your thoughts on that. Like, what have you learned about bringing people together and, and advancing shared goals despite differences? 
Um, you can never go wrong by starting with snacks. I'm not joking. I thought um, you were going to say food, I was and I was going to be like, "Yeah, my dad's from Memphis, so the whole, all the soul food, <laughs> food. I mean, I, I'm saying, here for it. it. Just, I mean." It, I, I, I was afraid that when this started, I was like, oh my gosh, I recently did a local podcast and was like, every local business that I talked about was a restaurant. And I'm like, are they going to think all I do is obsess over food? Because I promise it's more than that. And with you, it's been music. And I'm like, I'm either going to talk about food or music like we do nothing else and we do so much more. <laughs> but if you want to ease tension in a group, just have some good snacks. You know, it doesn't have to be a full like buffet of a feast. But if you just got, something for people to kind of nosh on like i mean we like we've got us we love a southern tea cake we love a charcuterie board we love just having something there that even if no one touches it the fact that you put it there lets people know that this is a welcoming environment and you want to always keep your table as round as possible right you always want to set up a room to where everyone is equal when you enter into conversations and also depending on the kind of community that you are that you recognize you're in Caddo Heights was the second place where we did a really big project and without delving into everything about it we started by getting the little ladies of the neighborhood and we rented a van and we drove around within the van and let them point out everything that they wanted to point out as a struggle. Here are the things that are bothering us here that we need someone to pay attention to. And in an environment, in a, in a neighborhood or a community where you have a lot of older people, a lot of blighted neighborhood like spaces and a lot of struggle, what you have is also a place where people feel like their community, where their entire city has forgotten about them. So sometimes you've got to be mindful that it's not your job to go in and be a savior, but it is your job to go in and love people. And if you can actually go in and not act like a rescuer, but also act from a place of care and concern and love and let people know that they are seen and that they have not been forgotten about, finding that balance, I think, is important. And sometimes it's not a matter of, I mean, and you'll hear the kind of, it sounds really hostile to me when I hear this, these people need to get up and do something for their community. They need to go do this for themselves. I want to speak to that without judgment, but just say some areas are just depressed and some areas need someone to come in and just say, we haven't forgotten about you, that you are a part of this greater community and we do care about you. And we want you to know that. Sometimes you just need some catalyst to get you energized about doing more. And sometimes when you're the ones to go out and do that, again, you meet the neighbors. They come out and say, I'm the only one. I'm the only one who ever cleans up this street. I'm the only one that ever picks up trash in this ditch. Well, you know what? You're not anymore. And that's funny because a neighbor around the corner has said the exact same thing. So maybe you guys need to get together and just know that you both exist. This reminds me so much of what we started off our conversation with of thinking about cities in this from this more like human perspective. They're they're hubs for people making magic and culture and and being creative, but they're also the location of people investing part of their hearts. You know, it's not just oh, this is a place where I got the best deal in a house and where I got you know these economic transactions and I. It's more than that. Like people have put part of themselves into their neighborhoods, right? Right. Um, And when you think about, okay, bottom-up revolution is all about making our cities better, one small thing at a time, right? Like just us out there and doing what we can. And I think thinking of cities as the holders of hearts, I guess, in a way, it's a terrible phrase, but- there's so much truth to it. Like- I'll say as an elected official that I found that the greatest asset to me in my role as a council member, my, I represented what, like 40,000 people. That's not a big area, but it's still a big area, but it would be the busybody little ladies. They are in every neighborhood. And if you're able to set aside time, and I, I would set aside time for doing my chores and talking on the phone to my little ladies because they had plenty to tell me. Some of it would be historical knowledge of the community, and a lot of it would be 
every single time a certain pothole had gotten filled or ignored, every single time a house had been boarded up, um, or every single time it had been reported but nothing was done. And then everything I need to know about every neighbor, how they're doing, how their grandchildren are doing for the entire block. And when you're able to actually connect the dots between the little ladies in the different little areas of a community, you've got the, the, you might see them on one side as just kind of these nosy people. But if you don't have an area where people feel safe being nosy, that is like a critical failure. If you've got a street where the little ladies do not feel safe on their porches, watching everything that goes on and knowing everybody's child and grandchild on that street, you've lost your eyes on the street, you know, as Jane Jacobs will call it, you know, like when you lose that, you have a, you've got a moral failing. You just do. Um, because they, they, they know because they want to know and they're nosy and they've got the time on their hands, but the fact that they're paying attention and other people are seen through that lens means that somebody cares. And, and if they care enough to sit on the phone with me, like I'm their grandchild, like once a month for like an hour where I know that, let me set this side of time because they are not going to let me off of this phone. I've gotten some really good dusting done and laundry folding and everything, you name it, just by setting that time aside to hear them out. And they run the range of modest homes in black neighborhoods to wealthy older white ladies that used to be in the junior league, like the entire gambit. They all had something to tell me. I'm glad you brought up your time on council because I am very curious what that was like for you. I feel like a lot of people might be intimidated by the idea of serving in public office. I think some people might say, ah, you're just feeding the machine. You're just feeding the bureaucracy that makes it so difficult for us to have bike lanes. What are you doing, LaVette? Um, <laughs> some people might, you know, they'll be like, oh, you know, I think it's easy to see council and elected officials and city staffers more or less kind of like the villain sometimes when, when thinking about like what it takes to make cities better. You've shown a different way. Um, it seems like you're, you know, through your example, of being both on the street level side of things with reform, also serving on council and even running for mayor. It seems like you have a sense of how these things can be integrated and not just kind of put against each other. So um, I, I guess the question in here is like, what did you learn from those experiences? And what would you say to someone who, or I guess like, how would you articulate how you see these more political roles playing a role in, in, in this positive vision of what, what our cities could become. You can lead from any seat. I have a mentor who says that, and then also says that in politics, you've got two types of people, people who want to be someone or people who want to get something done. Then I have another friend that's like, well, that's easy. Be somebody who gets something done. Um, for me, the biggest thing is, you can have a lot of ambitions. You can have a lot of desire for what you want to see change in the four-year term that you might have in something like a city council position. You're not going to be able to get everything done. You're not going to be able to answer every single call. You need to try to get back to as many of them as you can. And I'll say that like the hardest thing for me was knowing that because I allow, I allow long-winded ladies to keep me on the phone, there's another call that I didn't get and had to go back and get to that one too. There are a lot of things that don't require your attention as a council member, but you're going to get a call about it anyway because people want to vent. Sometimes that turns into data that shows you a bigger problem. You know, if the bigger problem might be a management issue, this pothole's been called in 20 times. Why, why is it having to come to me to get it fixed? There's a bigger issue in management. Y'all have got to figure out how to get to things to where you don't have 20 calls for one thing. Or it's been fixed 20 times and you're not fixing it properly. There's an issue underneath it. Like what's going on that's a bigger problem that needs more than a patch job. That does That narrative, that anecdote can become data. You're not going to ever know everything about a community when you get elected on day one. You should try to understand what those roles are before you get involved. Basic civics. A lot of people have no idea what their city council members do, and they're going to call you for everything, and you're going to want to, and you're going to need to be patient. 
but you get out of it what you put into it. A hard thing for people who probably come from a from a strong town's perspective is wanting to see everything be done that they can get done, having the energy and wanting to yield that energy to make amazing things happen. But you might be one of seven or one of nine or one of five. And sometimes that new broom coming in with all of this energy and all of this intention to do amazing things causes other people to be kind of annoyed because they just want to get their VIP tickets. They want their special parking space. They want to go to ribbon cuttings. They want to kiss babies. And you are now upsetting that apple cart. You might be able to soften that by meandering to a yes as much as you possibly can, but sometimes you're just going to have to be okay with people not liking you because you're because you want to see change, and it might not be enough for you to go along to get along. Yeah, well, too, it sounds like it sounds like part of what you're saying is that there's, you know. For- if you had to make a case for why the political side matters to making change happen in cities. And by political, I literally just mean like city council, <laughs> mayors, like the, the nuts and bolts here, right? Having all the different departments. That's what I mean by political. Um, that is essential to city functioning, right? Like Your like- day-to-day life is impacted more by the city council and the mayor than the president. I mean, like the, the closer it is to you, the bigger impact it's having on you and your day-to-day life. And- most people think that they will never have access to you. Um, the people that do call sometimes are surprised when they're able to get you and that they didn't just leave a message and you emailed someone and it just got fixed. There's going to be like that, that whole thing. But it's like knowing that it's going to take more energy than you're ever going to get paid for it. Like if it's a part-time position, you're still doing a full-time job. You are going to have late nights of doing emails and making phone calls and having to have flexibility to push through. But if you're making friends out of the people who are in your constituency, if when you go out, people are saying, thank you so much for taking a stand on this thing. We really appreciate you. We know it's not easy, but the people that you serve with are annoyed with you, then you're probably getting more right than you're getting wrong. But also too, I mean, thinking of cities as hubs of relationships, right? It's like, this is one out of many relationships that keep a city running, like the relationship between a constituent and an elected official or a city council person, right? Um, and there's something valuable. There's something There's something worthwhile about taking, about stepping into that relationship and saying, you know what? Someone has to fill this. Why shouldn't it be me? I guess the other thing, just as you were saying, like what you're saying about the potholes, it's like there will be some problems that you need government to fix, right? Yeah. Like you will, you just will, right? So I think- Eventually, we got we have to reckon with like the fact that the tactical, the street level, the you know, the has to coordinate with the political at some point, right? Well, and and not everything is going to be, not everything is going to seem as banal as the street as as what happens on the street. There's going to be some pretty big things. Like we did try to do a moratorium on annexation. I did try to um to get to abolish parking minimums. Was I able to get everything done that I wanted to do? No, but were we able to change the conversation? Absolutely. There are more and more people in this community that have a better understanding of things and are that much more equipped to tell truth to power, which is what we really wanted was behind me on the wall is a picture of Ella Baker. And Ella Baker said, um, to paraphrase, strong communities don't need strong leaders. Like when every member of the community has more capacity, the person that's out front doesn't have to be an iron fist. And when when people who would be more likely to second guess their ability for that role or their clout to go take on a role like that, if you've got that imposter syndrome, like just invite it to sit down to tea with you and say, no, this is exactly why I'm the person that should be doing this, you know? The people who are willing to under, to learn and then take what they learn and explain it to someone else. And more importantly than that, the people who are not afraid to just say, I don't know. I don't know, but I will find out. 
is just like the most refreshing thing that someone can say. Like having authentic, honest, and transparent leaders who aren't afraid of being a little bit vulnerable and just tell you, this is the this is my wheelhouse. What I don't know, I'm not afraid of learning because I care enough to find out for you. But also just being the refreshing person that can say, I don't know everything. I, I, I'm not going to dance around it because what you actually need is the right answer, not the fake phony answer that I could give you from limited knowledge. And I think that anyone that cares enough to listen to this podcast is someone that cares enough to be a part of making that kind of change. I mean, if you've made it this far in after all of the rambling, then you're definitely (laughs) someone that cares that much. I've enjoyed it. So just this emphasis on um, building relationships, on listening, on being willing to learn alongside people. I think perhaps something that can intimidate people away from even thinking about public office, whether that's running with public office or even just coordinating with, you know, your local politicians and city departments and stuff. It's kind of the pressure to feel like you have to know everything or you have to know it all. You have to know exactly what you're doing. But at the end of the day, my dad used to say this thing, people are just people are just people. <laughs> you know, the same skills you need to build, to have good conversations and build healthy relationships. You know, they can probably they can probably help you here. Let's close things up because I feel like you and I are the kind of people that could easily talk for two more hours. Just we love cities. So what are you working on now? So I know, so you ran for mayor, um, you, ju- you did not win. So are you back at Reform Shreveport? Are you still on council? Yes. What, what what has your attention these days? No longer on council. Reform Shreveport is like the, probably my biggest extracurricular outside of just like, you know, learning my new role in real estate. And I do have goals for that beyond just trying to sell or buy or help people buy things. I want to see how much I can influence our community from the private sector now. Um, but with Reform Shreveport, we are growing and we have a few we have a few goals right now that are policy related that hopefully will help influence our strategic plan for the city. Um, because there's about to be a big outreach to assess where we are as a city based on the comprehensive plan that we already have in place. And we also have a few communities that are wanting to work with us. We're going to go back into another part of Highland that has more commercial area that wants to see if we can bring a little bit more life and show people what's possible. And there's a church that's um, kind of adjacent to that area that has invited us to present and have a discussion with their congregation. They have like a speaker's a series that's going on and they've invited us to be their guests for August. And so we're really excited about that. Um, And we have a few other groups that want to meet with us to look at certain policies before they go to bureaucracy, before they go to like the planning department and say, Hey, this is where we're having a hiccup on getting something done. We want to talk to you about how we can make it better. But before they go to the planning department, we're going to sit down and look at some of those things and see what kind of approaches could be available just to make that a little bit smoother of a process. So we're looking at a few things that actually get us out on the street and interacting and volunteering and doing a look tactical things, but we also are looking at some data things. We've had a few big power outages lately that we've kind of helped bring more mapping data to them. We're trying to work with a few other organizations to help people where we're struggling with this heat because those same areas will be struggling in the winter and we want to get ahead of that before things get any worse. That, and then we also are going to try to present to our planning department ourselves, kind of our sister organization, sort of. There's another Strong Towns group in Shreveport that's focused on I-49 specifically, and they were able to give a presentation about roads versus strodes, but also how should our planning conversation happen? Should it be should it be a separate dynamic where the planning, built environment, land use thing is happening on one side and the transportation thing is happening separately, or should those things be happening together? And they've kind of started approaching that subject of, we're working in silos. We'd like to see the community not work in silos. And I think that we might want to take our own pass at that conversation um, in a formal setting with the planning department. What's so exciting about what you're what you're talking about here is just it, the one word that keeps going over and over in my mind is collaboration, right? Like collaboration. And I think that's a wonderful vision and goal 
for anyone who wants to be more involved in their city to, to, to think about. It's like, it doesn't have to be you versus the city. The running around under the cover of night, you know, fixing your city's problems. I'm all for it. But I also think this model of like collaborating with the city and being a resource for the city as they're shaping their plans and shaping their policies and initiatives. That's also a really inspiring goal to, to think of as well. We think of ourselves and it's, and when I say we, I think there's one of our founding members that kind of does this more than the rest of us, but it's Bruce Wayne versus Batman and reform is like the Bruce Wayne side of it. But that doesn't mean that some of us don't have kind of our Batman side <laughs> that might go out and paint a renegade crosswalk. Or, well, you have to keep them on their toes. I mean, yeah. let's be honest. <laughs> and, and it, but it does kind of, you kind of need all of that to be happening. Yeah. And, and bottom up doesn't mean that you just do things that run like a tangent, that run tangential to government. What it does mean, though, is that if you're able to work in small groups in the community and make a difference, you might actually have an avenue to getting influence with the, with, with the bureaucracy. Like they that are the purse strings of your community will see you as someone that can funnel many voices into one voice in order to help them clear that path and work more efficiently. I think you can do that without becoming like capital E establishment at the same time. Yeah. Love it. This has been amazing talking to you. Thanks for sharing all of your insights and experiences. In closing, I like to ask a fun question. So we both love cities. I love travel. I love road trips. And if someone was taking a road trip through Shreveport and they only had, let's say, an hour or two to stop, but grab a snack, grab a cup of coffee, where would you tell them to go? Where would be a where could they get a good slice of life in your okay. town? Okay. Well, you can go to Rhino Coffee for local coffee. I hope that you would come through on a Saturday where you could hit the farmer's market. Um, and then you might even get another local roaster there. Um Shreveport Coffee Roasters, grab some things from the farmer's market, have lunch at maybe Herbie K's where you can get like a good cup of gumbo, check out Southern Made Donuts, the original Southern Made Donuts, the only endorsement that Elvis ever did in the commercial was for Southern Made Donuts. You want to go there and get yourself some hot donuts at four o'clock because that's when they're fresh out of the fryer. And then from there, I think that you'd want to go to Sweetport and get some ice cream. But also we have an Art Deco museum, the Louisiana State Exhibition Museum that was built during the Depression. It was a New Deal project that has these amazing dioramas that are from that time period when it was first built. And I'm diorama obsessed. And I would say if there was one built thing that you went in and enjoyed, it might be that. But if you had time for two, I'd say go to the Norton Art Gallery, which is this huge um, art collection that is free, open to the public. The gardens around it are sensational, and it's right by a Rhino Coffee. So you can go through, check out the art inside, take a little traipse through their gardens, and then get yourself an iced coffee. But that's if you only have like, a couple of hours. I'm sold. I might have to <laughs> plan a road trip to Shreveport just to complete that itinerary. Thank you so much, Lavette. And um, to all of our listeners, thanks for tuning in. And I will see you next time. Well, let me say thank you to you too, Tiffany. I really appreciate the opportunity and please come over and visit with us and we're going to come over and see you in Waco. Sounds great. Thanks for listening to another episode of The Bottom Up Revolution. We'll be back in two weeks with another conversation. If there's someone in your community or network who you think would make a great guest for the show, please nominate them using the Suggest a Guest form linked in the show notes. Lastly, if you're in the Shreveport area and would like to check out any of the businesses that Lovette recommended, you can find those in the show notes as well. Mm-hmm.